So this morning we are in the final sermon in our series uh, called A People for His Name. This phrase comes from the Apostle James uh, in the book that we call the Acts of the Apostles. And we've been talking about the church in the first century. And we've seen pictures of where the apostles actually went in the first century because a little over a month ago, I got to go on a pilgrimage to a lot of these cities. And I've brought these pictures back to convince you they are on planet Earth. You can actually go there. You can go to these places and see where the apostles preached and performed miracles and signs and wonders. And, and what we've seen is that wherever the apostles went, some people in their audience made accusations against the church and the gospel. And here's a little handy chart I'm going to put up on the screen for you to see the difference between the accusation made against the apostles and the reality. So when the apostles were in Jerusalem and they performed this miracle, some people in the crowd said, oh, they've had too much wine. They must be drunk, even though it's 9 a.m. in the morning. And what was happening in reality was that the Holy Spirit was translating as they spoke into all of these different languages so people could hear. When the apostles went to Thessalonica, they were accused of making trouble all over the world. In reality, they were saying, Jesus is Lord, which is one of the most basic Christian confessions in our history. And they weren't saying that Caesar is Lord, so that's what was really making the trouble. When Paul went down to the city of Athens, uh, he was accused of advocating foreign gods. In reality, he was preaching the truth of the one true God revealed in Jesus. Uh, when he went down to Corinth, some of the Jews who were there accused him of convincing people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. In fact, he was talking about the law's fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus. And then finally, in Ephesus, uh, people accused the apostles of discrediting their trade. Their, their trade was to make idols uh, for all the pagan gods. In reality, what Paul was doing was exposing the wickedness of their trade. So everywhere they go, the apostles are accused of something, and, and we see the reality of it in the book uh, Acts of the Apostles. Now, I hope that you've seen everywhere we go, uh, everywhere we've been in this series, uh, we learn something about the impact of the gospel, wherever it goes. Uh, so this is kind of the gospel's impact by city. In Jerusalem, we see that the gospel spreads because of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit, not just the preacher's words, to convict people of sin and change their lives. In Thessalonica, we see that the gospel always causes trouble for earthly rulers because if our ultimate allegiance is in Jesus, uh, political powers are not going to respond kindly to that. In Athens, uh, all the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers already have their kind of philosophical presuppositions that are challenged by the gospel, and so the gospel always addresses controversial topics. In Corinth, we saw that any retelling of the gospel that excludes the Jews is actually not the gospel. The gospel is that the promises made to Abraham 4,000 years ago are given to us. So if you get rid of his story, we don't really have the gospel. And finally, in Ephesus, we see that the gospel always threatens somebody's wallet. Some business, some corrupt practice is always going to be exposed by the gospel, and the people who run those businesses are not going to be happy about that. So I hope, I hope this review kind of helps you see the gospel is not some tame, tepid thing that doesn't have an impact wherever it goes. Wherever it goes, it causes controversy. It causes people to react against it and make false accusations 
against it. And the last place on our, on our tour through the ancient world isn't a city. It's actually an island out in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And this tiny crescent-shaped island is less than 18 square miles big. And the island was actually used by the Roman Empire for, for political exiles, people who were deemed too troublesome for the empire. And it turns out that the author of the book we read today, his name is John, he was deemed troublesome because of this. He preached the word of God, and he talked about Jesus. That was all it took. He said, I'm on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Just think about that for a second. What you and I come to church every single Sunday to do, he was marooned and banished just for what we say every single Sunday. Now, for the past couple weeks, we've been talking about very specific accusations made against the apostles. This week, we realize that the accusation has already been made against John. The prosecution has already brought witnesses in the Roman court, and the verdict has already been issued. John is in exile. And I want to actually show you a picture of this island where he was banished. Now, I know what you're thinking. How do I get exiled there? That looks amazing, right? That most doesn't really seem like a punishment. How do I get there? Um, it, you, you've got to just pause for a second. Remove all the beautiful homes. Remove the tourism. Remove the businesses. Remove the cultivated vegetation. And then you'll have a feeling for what the Apostle John went through. Ancient tradition has it that the author of Revelation spent a lot of time in a cave. This cave, to be precise. Again, you have to remove the religious artifacts and think about what John went through. He lived and prayed in this cave. He slept on hard, gray, lifeless rock on a deserted island 37 miles from any civilization, cut off by water, fending for himself. This was not a pleasant experience. The past couple of decades have made Patmos a tourist location for people on cruises. That's not what it was like for John. These are the three things he faced. First of all, this was a legal punishment brought down by the Roman authorities on John. This was perfectly legal in his time. Just for preaching the gospel, his supposed crime, he was banished. Second of all, this was a verdict without an appeal. The Apostle John did not have an army of lawyers to help him. There was no further court that he could go to. When they had spoken, it seemed like, well, that was the end of John's story. For all intents and purposes, he would have to believe, I'm going to die here in exile. The only possible hope he has is for the current emperor to die, and maybe the next one might let me go. Otherwise, John is going to be on this island for good. The Roman Empire has spoken. But then, on the Lord's day, when John is in the Spirit, another voice speaks. And the first word that comes from this voice is right. John actually has a job to do on this island. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. He has a calling. He's going to write a book. This voice, whoever it comes from, says, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
Now, because of our culture and because of many misrepresentations of the book of Revelation, we often think that this is a total otherworldly book. But guess what? Those are real cities. And Paul and John wrote this book and sent this book to real Christians living in those cities. We know that John wrote this book for real Christians just like you and me. The only question is, who told John to write? Who did John see? So if you have a Bible with you, uh, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. You may have uh, a Bible app on your phone. Uh, you can get that out. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Uh, go to chapter 1 and go to verse 12. I want you to be able to see these words in front of you. You may have a physical Bible too. You can flip to the end and find it there. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. These Images are very uh, fantastic and amazing, but it's going to take some time to parse them and, and look at them in detail. Okay, so Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, we're going we're to see what John saw. Okay, this is what he says. I turned around to see the voice, which is already a fascinating phrase. He wants to see the voice that he heard. And so when he turned around, he did not see Initially, the person he was looking for, he saw seven golden lampstands. Now, this is already where things seem very strange and weird to us. But if you were a Jew, like the author of this book, that image would already set into mind two things for you, okay? First of all, every Jew would know that in the ancient tabernacle, that sanctuary that the Jews had in the wilderness, they had a golden menorah, a seven-branched lampstand that looks like a tree. Okay, so all the way back at the tabernacle, there was a menorah, and that would come to mind. The second thing that this would bring to mind for any Jew reading this book is Solomon's temple. He built ten grand golden lampstands and placed them in his temple. Okay, And what every Jew believed was that both the tabernacle and the temple was a kind of copy of the heavenly temple where God is. Okay, so what John is saying in a very Jewish way to a Jewish audience is that he is having a vision of the heavenly temple. All right, so now we know where we are. John is getting a glimpse of heaven. It's like the curtain is being pulled back and John sees the heavenly temple with these seven golden lampstands. And then that's when he sees the heavenly figure who first spoke to him. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. See that in verse 13? And then John immediately notices his clothing. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, to Americans in the 21st century, those details don't make sense. But John is using images that he would know from the Old Testament to describe the figure he's seeing. The Jewish prophet Daniel once had a vision in which he saw one like a son of man ascending into heaven and being seated on a throne next to God. So John is saying that whoever that figure was that the prophet Daniel saw, I'm seeing him now. Apparently, this figure is also wearing an ankle-length robe. It's the same exact term used for the garments that the high priest of Israel would wear. So John is saying, I'm seeing the guy that the prophet Daniel once saw, and I'm seeing a high priestly figure. And John doesn't stop there. His description gets even more fantastic and more beautiful. The, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like 
blazing fire. Can you can you almost hear John stutter as he's trying to grasp her images? It's like it's like his feet were like bronze, glow, glowing in a furnace, and, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. You see, his his hair isn't normal. His feet aren't normal. His eyes aren't normal. Everything about this figure that I'm seeing is glorious and different in every way. John isn't even, he's not making these details up out of the blue. These are all references to the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel said, God has hair that's white like wool. In the Psalms of David, David says that God washes our sins and makes us white as snow. In the Song of Solomon, the poet King says that love is like a blazing fire. The prophet Ezekiel has a vision in which he sees the glory of God, and he says his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. All of these references to the Old Testament are so important. It's like all the Old Testament drew this outline, this kind of sketch of a figure that is so glorious and amazing, and John is saying, I'm seeing the man who fills that outline. It's like they only had a sketch, and I'm seeing the real man himself. These are not made-up details that John came up with out of the blue. These are, these are awesome, glorious, and also fearsome descriptions of this man. He says, just in his right hand, it's like he could hold seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a double-edged sword. His face is so luminous that it's like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This power of this figure is unmatched. It's infinite and terrifying, which makes sense of John's reaction. Look at what he does. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Y'all, if we see famous people... We crumble, right? We see somebody who's a celebrity. We think they're amazing. And we can hardly stand in their presence. If we saw Jesus in this way, enthroned in heaven, we would pass out. It's exactly what John does and it's exactly what everybody does when they encounter the Lord. They're terrified. Not because he's threatening, but because you know how small and weak you are in his presence. He's also, in addition to being fearsome, reassuring. He places his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We know who this figure is. He must be the only man who ever lived and died and rose again, never to die again. This man is Jesus of Nazareth. He must be. Pope Benedict XVI points out that do not be afraid is the exact phrase that Jesus uses when his scared disciples are seeing him walk on the water. This figure has said these words before. John is seeing Jesus in heaven, and Jesus has a commission for John. He has a job for him to do, which he repeats. He says, I need you to write. Write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. 
Okay, this is so important. I don't know if you noticed this as Bob read for us today, but John uses a lot of legal language throughout this first chapter. He refers to Jesus as the faithful witness. He says, I testify to everything I saw. What I preached was the testimony of Jesus. I don't think that's an accident. I think he's using legal language because he was recently a defendant in a Roman trial. And he lost his case, didn't he? The verdict on him was exile and banishment. And so now Jesus is saying, look, I know you were an, were an earthly witness. I know you were an earthly defendant. Now I'm making you a witness of heavenly matters. It's almost like Jesus is calling John to be a clerk, taking minutes in heaven. And here's what John goes on to see. I want you to see the difference between what, what goes on from Rome's perspective, the empire's perspective, and what happens in the book of Revelation. Right? The Romans think that they have legally punished John. But what John goes on to see in Revelation is that God punishes injustice. If from Rome's perspective, this is the final verdict. They, they issued their declaration about John's life. In the book of Revelation, we see that God has the final say. John might be thinking right now that he's going to experience death in exile. What we see in the book of Revelation is that God vindicates martyrs. This is so important. What John is experiencing in his suffering on earth is just one small, tiny human story, but it's nothing in comparison to the divine story that God is writing. Right? These two things are happening at the same time. Now, I know that, that this chapter and really this book can be really hard to, to comprehend. So I want to spend some time talking about a man I learned about this past week. And I think his life just demonstrates this two-story perspective, okay? This man's name, we're going to put this black and white picture of him up on the screen. His name is Franz Jägerstadter. He is an Austrian farmer born in 1907 in a village called Radigand. And his, his father died in World War I. He grew up without his dad. And as a young boy, a young teenager, he was pretty rebellious. Uh, but once he married, he had three children, and he really became a devoted Christian. Now, in his 30s, he saw his country of Austria invaded by the German army. And he was the only person, I mean the one person in his village who voted against the Nazis, voted against submitting to them. And, but, but still, two years later, he was drafted. He was called up to be a part of the German army. But he found out that in order to join the army, you had to swear an oath of complete loyalty to Hitler. If you're going to be in the army, you had to swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler. Now, Franz even offered to be in the medical corps, but here are the two, his two convictions. I'm not going to swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler, and I'm not going to kill for Hitler. I can't do either of those things. His life is actually told, uh, his, his life story is told in a movie called A Hidden Life. Okay, This movie came out a couple years ago. It's three hours long, but if you invest in it, it is worth it, okay? Clearly, you can tell my wife was gone for the past couple weeks because I had three hours to watch this, okay? Uh, throughout the movie's depiction, this is so important. Every single person in his life tries to get him to swear the oath. There are no exceptions. The villagers in his town say, Think of your family. I mean, if you're executed, your wife is going to be a widow, and your three daughters will be fatherless. 
The mayor of the town keeps telling him, this is a betrayal of the fatherland. You're betraying your country. His neighbors tell him, oh, you, you must think you're better than all of us, right? We swore the oath, but you won't do it because of your principles. His mother blames his wife for making him too religious, too Christian. His lawyer tells him, just say the oath and I'll advocate for you. I'm putting my safety on the line for you. My least favorite, the priest, says this. Y'all need to hear these words. God doesn't care what you say, only what's in your heart. Just say the oaths and think what you like. The prison guards tell him, one little man is not going to change the world. Even the judge at his trial tells him, no one will ever hear your story. In 1943, he stuck with his convictions. He was condemned for sedition. And this is the last thing he wrote before he was executed. If I must write with my hands in chains, I find that much better than if my will were in chains. Neither prison nor chains nor sentence of death can rob a man of his faith and his free will. Listen to this line. God gives so much strength that it is possible to bear any suffering. People worry about the obligations of conscience as they concern my wife and children, but I cannot believe just because I have a wife and children that I am free to offend God. Now let's think about this from an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. From an earthly perspective, the Nazis think we've won. Right? We killed this man. We made his wife a widow. We made his children fatherless. And we sent a message to anyone thinking that they could stand up to us that this is what happens when you cause trouble. And for decades, no one knew about the story of Franz Jägerstadter. But what do we know about him from God's perspective? What do we know about him from a heavenly perspective? Well, we know he's in heaven. Because he was martyred for his faith in Christ and his refusal to swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler. We know that his story is told in that movie. And we know that in the end, the Nazis lost. They were wrong. And Franz was right. I think this is what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about what appears to be the case on earth and what is real from heavenly perspective. It looks like... John is going through meaningless pain that the final verdict on his life is exile, and the Romans have had the last word. In reality, he has led a beautiful life. He is divinely vindicated by God, and God's word has the final say on his life. And this is true of Franz. This is true of every Christian who suffers in this life for the sake of the gospel. Because here's the truth. Every Christian should expect to suffer for the gospel. Now, there are many different forms of suffering. We aren't being uh, persecuted for our faith here in this country, but there are Christians all over the world for whom this is the norm. This is the expectation. They know as soon as they get baptized, I will suffer for this. Every Christian should expect to suffer because Jesus himself says to pick up your cross every day. No one who picks up a cross is surprised by suffering. Jesus says, you should not be shocked when you follow me 
and suffer for it. But here's the beauty of the book of Revelation. Suffering is not the end of the story for John. Just because we suffer for the gospel doesn't mean that God won't vindicate us in the future. That's what he sees as you read through the book of Revelation. Every single person who suffers for Christ is vindicated. Because in the end, God wipes away every tear from every eye of those who enter his kingdom. Suffering has a say. But not the final say. And that's why, if we suffer for the gospel, that is a testimony to other Christians. Think about all the Christians in those seven cities who received this book from John. They are encouraged. To our suffering, our persecution for the sake of Christ is not the end of the story. It's not the whole picture. When you read the book of Revelation, we see what God has in store, what his will is, what he is going to do in the end. It's a testimony to other Christians. God is up to something greater than we might be able to see on earth. Even though we lose battles here, the war is won there. So if you finish this sermon series, and if you're listening online, or if you're here today, and this is the only one you've heard, my hope is that you come away with one truth, is that the gospel is both a guarantee of suffering for Jesus and a guarantee of vindication for those who endure suffering. The gospel is a guarantee of suffering. We pick up our cross every single day and we are guaranteed to be vindicated for our suffering if we endure. And that's the phrase that John keeps coming back to over and over in this book. He refers to patient endurance. That's what we need. That's what we need when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray for that virtue this morning. Father, there's many different ways of suffering for Jesus. Whether it's the growing pains of discipleship where we're putting our old life behind us, where we're trying to break free from our vices and sin, that is a form of suffering for Jesus. Whether it's the, the suffering of the devil's temptations, his lies, his schemes, the powers of the demonic, we know that's a form of suffering for Jesus. We know that in order to gain our souls, the Lord says that we can lose the whole world. That's a form of suffering. We know that there are those who are ostracized because of their faith. And we know that there are those like Franz and so many other martyrs who die for their faith. We, we know that all these forms of suffering should be expected. And so, Father, we ask for patient endurance. Even when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, to have our hope rested on the fact that you will vindicate us. We pray all of this. In the name of Jesus, amen.